ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. We're back with another jam-packed episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Helping us to make sense of the latest headlines is Daily Maverick editor Feriel Hafiji. Here's what we're chatting about today. As the war in Gaza continues, we look at the inexcusable human cost on both sides. Then the fight against corruption continues, but is government even in our corner? No political office bearers, the people who allowed state capture to happen, nothing has happened to them. In fact, the former president, Jacob Zuma, is going to be playing a key role in the ANC campaign leading up to the election in KZN next year. Later, Transnet has gone off the rails and another bailout is probably not the best solution. And hold on to hope and celebrate the beauty of South Africa as we wrap things up with a few green shoots. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, Feriel. It's been a good while since we've had you with us. How have you been? Hi, Lizanne. It's really lovely to be back with you again. I must say, looking forward to a holiday, but at the same time, it feels like this constant accompaniment is this appalling war in Gaza that I must say has kept me scrolling for probably far longer and far deeper than is healthy. Definitely. I'm in exactly the same position. I'm on various telegram groups and I know it's probably not the healthiest approach, but I just... I, I need to know what's happening almost at all times. So this takes us straight into our very first story. And the world's attention was drawn to the Middle East at the beginning of October, of course, when Hamas launched an unprecedented attack on Israel near the Gaza Strip. Now, a little over a month later, it's still a hugely divisive topic for many. I mean, we've seen the discourse online. But I think regardless of which side of this war you're on, the continuous loss of innocent lives, most notably children in Gaza, must be condemned by all. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think you have to be on the human side of things. And that what I've been watching very closely, Lizanne, is where people are building bridges across this massive divide. They're reaching out to each other as fellow humans. And in the world, there are wiser people who are thinking quite deeply about how you get out of this. At the moment, though, the hawks on either side seem to be in pole position. And now it's just awful on a humanitarian basis. I was reading on Al Jazeera that the equivalent of Two nuclear bombs has been dropped on Gaza since October the 9th. Truly horrific. And I think we don't even know the true number of deaths. And like you say, I was very drawn to that statement by Antonio Guterres or one of the UN agencies who said that Gaza has become a graveyard of children. That mm. must surely give us all pause for thought. Huh? Yeah, because I've also been keeping an eye on the figures just to kind of wrap my head around what's happening. And some of the figures by the UN and Reporters Without Borders last week are, are really frightening. I saw that 65% of Gaza's population is internally displaced, over 12,000 fatalities in total 
total on both the Gaza and and the Israeli front. Mm. And most of those are children and it's Palestinian children. Out of every 10 people killed in Gaza, four of them are children. It's just horrendous. But there's also been a real onslaught, for lack of a better word, on journalists. So far, I saw Reporters Without Borders saying that there's about 41 journalists that have been killed, although they do say that, you know, it's very difficult to keep track of this figure because information is quite limited. That's about one journalist every single day that's getting killed there. You know, the Committee for the Protection of Journalists and others have said that it's the highest single number of journalists killed in a crisis or in a war period ever since they started recording these things. So that's, again, completely unprecedented. And I saw somebody on X saying the other day, that if it wasn't for these extremely brave journalists, we would be blind to what's happening in Gaza because Israel has imposed three communications blackout where they try and do a net down, they shut down the internet. But people are using different methods of getting the images, the messages out. And I think that's the only way that we know the gravity and the depravity of what's happening there. So we all owe them such a huge debt. I mean, I've been watching a young journalist called Plestia on Instagram. I mean, she used to be like an influencer before, you know, going to nice places and posting about it. And this has made her, in her own words, a war correspondent wearing the blue helmet and the bulletproof vest emblazoned with with the word press on it. So many, many stories like these, and I just look upon them with ultimate gratitude and also enormous respect for their bravery in this difficult time. Now, the Israeli government just recently announced that it will pause the bombardments for periods of up to four hours at a time. And I'm sure it comes as a very tiny bit of solace for the Gazan people. But I'm just thinking to myself, four hours, what do you do in four hours? How do you treat thousands of wounded people in four hours? How do you shelter tens of thousands in just four hours? My colleagues at the Daily Maverick have been reporting, trying to get first-hand reports from humanitarian aid workers on the ground, like doctors, relief workers, etc. And it seems like there are people banked, especially at the Egyptian border, just waiting for this humanitarian pause to kick in. And what you should see even from our own gift of the givers is a pouring in of this kind of relief. So what good humans can do in what is that 60 times 4 is 240 minutes is often quite amazing. And like you say, I really do look forward to watching that. It's good that American pressure was finally brought to bear on Israel to allow those humanitarian pauses because earlier in the week it looked like Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was not even going to allow mm. those four hours. Yeah, because he's been pretty steadfast in his approach and seems like he wasn't willing to listen at all. So I'm so happy that someone was able to get through to him. But I also want to quickly, before we wrap this up, yes. uh, touch on the social media aspect of this war, because that's kind of how we started this conversation as well. And I think anyone who spends even the shortest amount of time online will eventually come across content leaning one way or the other, I think it's crucial that we just remind our listeners that it's so important to do your own research and question the source of any war-related content because a battle is also being fought online and it's done in such a way that it's often 
almost indiscernible from the truth. So I really want to implore everyone listening to be more active in their news consuming and really, really question things before they just react. You're absolutely right. What we're seeing is the first wars Ukraine and now Gaza fought on social media, which becomes a battlefield in its own right. And I'm sure you have, as have I, lots of disinformation, partisan material being shared on WhatsApp groups by families, etc. And my rule of thumb is to only share that which comes from the UN or from trusted sources so that you're making sure that what you're putting out there is correct and factual information and that at least as journalists, we should try and balance that all the time. The National Anti-Corruption Advisory Council came together for two days last week to discuss strategies to tackle rampant corruption across various sectors. Themed Together Building a Corruption-Free Society, the dialogue aims to strengthen the objectives as set out in our Constitution, as well as the National Development Plan. And as well-intentioned as President Cyril Ramaphosa's opening remarks might be, it felt like more of the same for many. So, on to our next story. Last week, President Cyril Ramaphosa addressed the National Anti-Corruption Advisory Council. And I know whenever you say that, a lot of people just roll their eyes and yeah. laugh, <laughs> thinking it's a joke, you know. And Ramaphosa stated that, in his words, corruption has wounded our democracy and shaken people's faith in our institutions. I don't think South Africans would argue with that. No. But I think what some might argue with is his continued emphasis on the idea that it's everyone's shared responsibility to fight corruption. It sounds lovely, but let's be honest. I mm. think we've reached a point where government now needs to start cleaning its own house and then we will start playing along as well, because we've been trying for <laughs> decades. <laughs> quite right, quite right. I mean, for me, the repast which I read very keenly and with great attention comes from the Chief Justice, who said that our country risks being destroyed unless you don't disrupt the depth of the corruption, which we continue to see. And then he laid out in detail the things which he felt hadn't been done, like not enough attention paid to how to fix procurement, because in four years, he found out that 1.4 trillion or thereabout annual budget that the state spends buying goods and services is where the corruption sets in. Government's not done enough about that. And then I guess the key point is that I don't know about the questions you get, but the ones that I do get is that no political office bearers, the people who allowed state capture to happen, nothing has happened to them. In fact, the former president, Jacob Zuma, is going to be playing a key role in the ANC campaign leading up to the election in KZN next year. Surely that is telling you a story that we should reflect upon with some depth as we listen to our president saying it's all our duty. I think in simple terms, Mr. President, with all due respect, the time for talk is over. They really need to act against their own now and show the people that they are with us in this collective fight. I think it's also important, I try and say, Okay, things are happening. And what's actually been lovely to see is that in big instances for billions of rand, 
just good civil society work is stopping corruption in its tracks. So if you look at NISFAS, where they wanted to, in some very dodgy deals, subcontract the payments to four companies, and then that's where that huge profit-making sets in, Outer stopped that one in its tracks. Mm. Over at the UIF, where there was going to be this five billion rand deal, subject now to a lot of discussion about whether ministers were in on it or not, Mr. Mtunziem Dwaba, that one's also been stopped in its track. So as usual in our country, it's a very alert civil society, a media that keeps power on its toes. We are beginning to see big scandals stopped even before they can happen, and that's a good thing. It doesn't excuse government from doing the right thing, though, as you First, it was ESCOM, then South African Airways, and now it's all eyes on Transnet. As yet another state-owned enterprise clings on for dear life, government is trying to find solutions to Transnet's ballooning debt crisis. Normally, a hefty bailout would be the go-to, but with the national purse strings tighter than ever, a quick fix might be a long way off. I think there's been so much focus on ESCOM in recent years, and rightfully so, that another major SOE has sort of crumbled in a less public fashion, until recently that is, and that's Transnet. Transnet is on its knees and it has huge implications for South Africa because without a functional freight rail system, our economy cannot function. Absolutely. If you drive on any of our roads, the failures of Transnet are painfully palpable. You can be going to Durban, you can be in Pomalanga, going north to Limpopo. The roads are just jam-packed with trucks. And the reason for that is because the rail system has completely broken down. And Prof. Jan Hafenga at Stellenbosch has put the cost of this at a billion rand a day. And I guess it's those figures that have been part of the narrative because the new board of Transnet headed by Andile Sankru as well as a fresh board being put in place, they went to parliament and said, we're going to need a massive bailout. I'm not sure how much more we are South Africans taxpaying, and that's all South Africans because everyone pays through VAT as well. How much more we can afford to bail out both Transnet and ESCOM? And if the moment hasn't arrived where you say, actually, you've got to allow private concessions to run these things because really the parastatal can't do its job. Enoch Godongwana, during his midterm budget speech, said something that really kind of stuck with me, and I think it bears some repeating, is that the future success of our various SOEs, including Transnet should be based on transforming these sectors instead of constantly trying to save them. I really hope that government follows through on that in terms of rather trying to fix the actual sector instead of just handing out money time and again, time and again, and hoping for things to change. I think, you know, at ESCOM, you get the proper debt figures, but it, it looks like the state's going to take on about almost 300 billion rand of its mm. debt quite soon in order to clear its balance sheet so that it can be broken into its transmission, generation and distribution divisions. And we're likely to see 
see a similar kind of thing happening at Transnet. But if you do look at the medium-term budget policy statement, there's just not the space to take on that kind of debt. And I think the next year is going to be about hard decisions. The biggest decision there will be trade unions champ at the bit at any sort of allowing private sector participation on the big lines, be it manganese or, or coal. And that mm-hmm. certainly is going to have to be the discussion for the next couple of years, because like you say, there simply isn't the money for it. Just to wrap this up, we have a story on these abandoned train towns, and it really opens your eyes to the impact these rail systems have across the country. Entire economies are being wiped out just because the trains aren't running anymore. So there's so much potential to revive various parts of our economy and society and inject new life into entire communities if we just get the rail system up and running. Absolutely. And then carte blanche also so acutely watches the impact of trucking on communities and on the transport system. What do weavers, hadidas and hummingbirds have to do with the future of South Africa? Everything if you look at the latest in Lulamiti Scenarios 2030 barometer. It's a novel approach to keeping an eye on South African issues and helping experts and citizens figure out a way forward. Then, Trevor Noah busts a few myths in a witty but oh-so-fantastic campaign to attract tourists to sunny South Africa. So, onto our green shoots, and I'm so happy you brought these. (laughs) I'm so happy you brought these because they're just lovely. You recently attended the launch of the Inglulamiti Scenarios 2030, and it's a really fascinating project. In short, it's a national and provincial barometer to track South Africa's progress, and it uses 53 indicators to answer one key question, and that is, what would a socially cohesive South Africa look like, and can it be achieved? by the year 2030. Of course it can be achieved, but if it will be achieved was the big question at the launch this week. So in Lulamiti means giraffe and the scenarios take a bird's eye view of the country using 54 indicators, interviews across the spectrum of our society. This time it's plotted the scenarios according to different types of birds, the hardida, the weaver bird, the hummingbird, etc. And each of those is either a good, bad, a median or best case scenario. And they can't say right now which way we're going to go, but they do offer us these four roads, any of which could be our likely future unless we don't do certain things. But to understand where we might be heading, you have to go back to their first sets of scenarios. And what they found, because they're now about five years old, is in fact the worst case scenario that has arrived in South Africa. Reforms haven't been deep enough, corruption's been manic, and all the things we've been speaking about. But what was really interesting to me is that despite all of that, you have these institutions like your judiciary, like your media, like your civil society. And for all of those reasons, South Africans aren't a hopeless people. We still retain a lot of hope and a lot of resilience. And that for me was really interesting to hear. And it's especially the young people who remain the most hopeful. 
That goes against yeah. every single narrative in our country. But it was really interesting for me to find that out. When I went through some of the latest findings, I was really, really taken by how hopeful it is. Absolutely. Um, and the whole tone of it is let's just build South Africa again and let's fight against social inequality. Let's fix our leadership. Mm. Let's put reconciliation at the forefront. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful concept. And I just love it. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. And, <laughs> you know, you come away from it feeling like it can be done and mm. that we must each play our role in ensuring that it is. Obviously, the election is going to fundamentally shape or reshape those scenarios. But I do think they set up an essential talking point in our country. Absolutely. So let's wrap things up with Trevor Noah. Anyone who hasn't seen the ad, please head on over to X. Go check out the ad there. It's it's really going viral at the moment. And it is this beautiful ad featuring Trevor Noah to encourage people to visit South Africa, but in a wonderfully humorous way. I don't know why, but my favorite part is the bit about the ostrich. I can't explain why but that just made me so happy and it's just stuck with me and it's made my day i think it's brilliant the whole thing you know the setup where he answers questions which he has been asked about south africa on his travels around the world so um do you have golf courses will i be eaten <laughs> by a lion <laughs> Things and he answers them and obviously the matching tv work which is what your expertise is in just shows off south africa Africa to its most beautiful best. And in a world torn by war and uncertainty, suddenly it makes us look like a bit of a safe haven and a really cool place to visit. I think it's perfectly timed for the holiday season. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it any better. Well, Feriel, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful and varied chat um, yes. today. We've, we've covered really everything from the really, really dark and awful to the very happy and lighthearted. So thank you so much for the time. And I really hope to have you on the show again very soon. It was a lovely chat. Thank you. Have a lovely day. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. Thank you.